Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, rash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. You know we love the Brits, so we had to have another one on. What's up, everybody? You are listening to the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your trustful co-host, Joel Cheeseman, joined as always by Chad Sowash. Well, hello. And today we are joined, we're honored to, to bring you Joanne Lockwood, inclusion and belonging specialist. And I'll note, by the way, because her uh, LinkedIn profile says that she's a proud Gen Xer, which which we obviously. Yeah, obviously oh, yeah. Xers, baby. So, OK, wait, we did start, we slow down a little bit. Inclusion and belonging specialist. Specialist. I've never seen belonging. We've, I mean, we've I talked use about the belonging it. specialist. I need some belonging. <laughs> what is Joanne right out of the gate? What does that mean? Inclusion we get. What is the belonging specialist to help us out with that? Well, for me, I think, you know, we wind the clock back maybe 20 or 30 years. We were all talking about equality, weren't we? we each country had the Equality Act this, the Equality Act that, equal pay, gender, race, etc. And then as we matured, we started talking about, more than equality, we wanted diversity. We wanted to make sure we had people in our organizations. And we started having diversity programs. And now the buzzword became inclusion, where we need to make the, the people who are different, diverse, give them something to gel about, make sure they had an identity. And now what organizations are realizing is it's not enough just to give people a job, enough, enough to have people coming into work, turning up, doing their thing. They need to feel a part of it. They need to understand the values and vision and culture of an organization and make sure there's a real alignment between your own personal values and the values of an organization. So belongingness is that that intersection where people kind of feel that safety, that sense of that's well, that sense of belonging, where they feel they have a voice, they feel respected, they feel a part of the bigger organization. And they're aligned in those values. So that's that's where I come from. Okay, so so they do that through meritocracy, basically, right? Because the best person for the job is is that's what that's what meritocracy is, right? Well, that's what I hear, and I hear it often. <laughs> but uh, I often do DNI talks um, or inclusion talks to hiring managers, to hiring teams, and there's always somebody that stands up and says, "Well, yes, but we always hire the best person for the job," as if that's the kind of the get out clause, you know, the get out of jail free monopoly card that says, yeah, whatever we do, the best person's going to get the job. And that's this myth, this that's this kind of mantra that people put out. Because if that wasn't what's happening, the whole system of fairness would be undermined. You can always fall back on the fact that the best person got the job. And that's what is portrayed. And I I question sometimes how we decide who the best person for the job is. Who decides what is the meritocracy? Who decides what makes up the best person? And often I see it's in someone's image. You know, you have a person called Frank and Frank leaves. You want another Frank. Um, or you think, well, we, we want, we've got a couple of Franks. We like another Frank. So you, you're, you're judging the skills and attributes of the role often by the incumbents or by what's being done already. And what we don't tend to look at is other skills. We tend to base it on time served, degrees, qualification, college education, whatever it may be, or someone you know. What we've got to start looking at is for the future. You know, if we look at the future of work, you, know, you, you guys talk about this a lot, and I know that a lot of listeners listen to this, talk about this a lot, is that the work is changing. 
no shit Sherlock, you know, as we would say in the UK, no shit Sherlock. The work <laughs> is changing. The, the whole COVID situation going on right now, if we hadn't noticed, the zombie apocalypse is upon us. We're having to deal with this change. And people are working from home. They're working differently. So what was meritocracy six months ago, a year ago, has completely changed. What is the best person for the job? It used to be bouncy, extroverts, go-getty, salesy, people who would sort of like drive and drive and drive. And now what we want is people who are more focused, more methodical, more self-starting, more able to work on their own. So what we value in people now is changing. And I, and I think we need to reflect that in what this meritocracy means and what it – is it just a way of propagating this, this status quo of people like us, PLU, people like us? Because that's what we see. And how does someone someone, how someone who's different break into that? Joanna, it seems to me like this is, this is the – for lack of a better word, the best argument – uh, that people have against sort of what you're what you're pushing, and and for me personally, you know, my father was uh, a coach growing up, right? And I'm a sports fan, and which to me is sort of the ultimate meritocracy. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about sports is it really doesn't matter your color, uh, where you came from, your religion, anything like that. If you can perform and win, you get to be a player. Um, and here in America, I think in particular, there's there's a rugged individualism of, you know, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you get yourself through, you're, you're gauged by your, you know, your own efforts and government isn't supposed to help you. And a lot of that is myth mythology. But to me, this is the best argument against it. And in, in, in contrast, it's going to be the hardest wall to break down. Am I wrong about that? And if I'm not, um, are we breaking the wall down? Can it be broken down? What, what should, what should, government's role be. Um, th there just seems to be like such a mountain to climb because we have such ingrained in our brains where the best person should get those jobs and those opportunities. But we're learning more and more that that's not the case. For, for sure. In, in some cases, first past the post is the winner. And we recognize that, as you say, in sport, in the 100 meters, Usain Bolt gets across the line, he gets the gold. And that, that's kind of how we judge the meritocracy based on that kind of black and white, inarguable, faster, bigger, et cetera, et cetera. But in business, we recognize that there are more skills than just being able to deliver something in the quickest way. You know, you, you're a, a bookkeeper. You can process more invoices than anybody else in an hour. But you may be a complete jerk. You may have no social skills. You may not. You may not be aligned with the company culture. You may be a racist. You may. You may have all these other attributes that are undesirable for the company. But we're look, just looking at fast first past the post. Are you the best person who could knock out these invoices quickly? And you may not care about their personality. You may not care about the other skills. You may not care about how they can help their colleagues, um, how they can add value to the organization above and beyond their, their basic requirement. So when we're looking at meritocracy, we've got to think about all of the factors that make a great employee a great person, someone who's going to be feel this sense of belonging, someone who's going to want to be with the organization for a long time. Because we're not looking to have high turnover. We're not looking to make, we, we want to make people stick beyond three years if we can to get value out of the investment we've made in onboarding them and hiring them, uh, avoiding that empty chair. But if we're just focusing on someone who could do something quicker, bigger, faster, then we lose all that richness of humanity around them. 
And I'm not, I'm not suggesting for one minute that you hire the worst person for the job. But what we need to start doing is valuing diversity, valuing difference on a par with bigger, stronger, faster. So you're saying a lot of, you know, we need to, we need to, who, who is we or who are, who are the most important we's? Is it just society at, at large? What's a, what's government's role? Is this a PR battle? Um, does media play a role or technology? Like what, if you're, if you're, if you're creating a strategy, like who are the most important players to make this change happen? It comes down at the end of the day to power and privilege, the people with the power of, of decision, the people who are constructing the hiring process, deciding what that meritocracy in a, I mean, if we're talking specifically around uh, in an organization, uh, a business, uh, or even a government, even a government organization where people have, are hired, fired, promoted, recognized, then those are the type of organizations I'll talk about. So the we would be the institution of an organization, the institution of the public body. I don't think government per se necessarily needs to legislate this. I think what it should be is organizations see the value of difference, see the value of other skills, uh, adaptability, learning ability, flexibility, all these other skills that we, we sometimes aren't able to uh, objectify. We, but they're kind of subjective gut feel. They seem a bit more flexible. They seem a nicer person. So how do we objectify these and make them measurable? Isn't identifying it the number one step? It has to be identified within the organization that it's actually happening. Meritocracy is is the best person getting the job. Well, what is what does your workforce composition look like? And uh, are some of those requirements for a job, like getting into a sales job, like you'd said before, do you really need a four-year degree to get into uh, an entry-level sales job? Or is that just a filter to be able to create this level of meritocracy? So isn't identification really the first step? Oh, for sure. And we're talking about sales. We, we have to recognize that people buy from people, and that's never going to change. You build rapport, you sell ideas, you sell a vision, a dream, and people are more ready to listen to your buy from you if you're like them, which is why we, we we are trying to align customers and salespeople with very similar traits. So I, I think it is important to recognize that some people are more fit, more fitting to a role than others. You know, I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to suggest that you put someone of the Jewish faith into a Muslim account all the time or some of a Muslim account into a Jewish account, or you wouldn't necessarily want to send a young girl or a young woman into an account with just old white men. Or, or maybe you do because they might sell. They might sell better into that. Bingo. One. <laughs> oh, yeah. But okay, without going to sexist sort of kind of. Um, You're talking about old white men. I mean, that comes along with old white men, right? Um, okay, I was, I was trying not to go into that to that connotation, <laughs> but yes, um, <laughs> yes. All right, you got me there. Um, yes, sex does sell, and. Yeah, unashamedly, some organizations use attractive people to sell their products. And uh, yeah, yeah, we see it in boxing, we see it in motor racing, we see it in all these kind of advertising where uh, young, attractive women are often used to promote brands and to promote um, and to sell. Um, but then we, we, have our, we have also, we have our definition of beauty. You know, it, it's, it is, a, is a, a blonde white woman of a certain age of a certain figure size, de facto standard, you know, they're the best. Or is an Asian woman or is a Chinese woman or is a black woman? Um, 
equally meritocracy in, in this kind of scenario. But we, we often look at it from our own lens and see what we would find attractive or what we would find desirable. And this is where we often fall over. We're not using enough lenses to decide what makes up the best person for this role. So talent acquisition is a female-dominated career segment. You'd probably agree with me there, right? Um, if this is a problem, why aren't why are females allowing this shit to happen? Why aren't directors and managers and VPs of talent acquisition saying, no, this job description is total bullshit because that's, we know that's really where it all starts, right? It's at the job description. It's at the requirements. Why aren't females inserting themselves into this process and saying, look, we're identifying right now meritocracy is happening. It's bullshit. And we're going to stop it. Why, why aren't they, why aren't they doing something about this? You say that females dominate the profession. I don't think females dominate the profession at all levels. Maybe at the the more junior or the yeah you know, the, the sort of the day to day roles. But do they hold the power? Do they hold the privilege mm-hmm. as it goes up the organisation? Do they have the real power to control the JD, or are they or are they towing the line? You know, does does the hiring manager come along and say, "Well, I want a, I want a slate of these sort of people," and once the recruiters put the slate together, do they have any control really about who gets hired at the end of that? Yes, you could put a diverse slate with various different people, very different backgrounds on there. But stats show that often it's, it's the the incumbent type person that gets hired because they are the ones that are seem to be more fitting or more suitable to that role. Uh, don't necessarily want to take a risk on a on a, someone who is less typical. And also, I don't believe the culture is always good. You know, I, I, I've seen situations many times where people are, are scared or afraid to hire a woman into an all-male world because they don't know how to handle that difference. They don't know how to handle a woman in the boardroom. Or they're looking at it purely from a, a tokenistic point of view to, to tick a box or to, uh, to address uh, a short-term need. We'll get back to the interview in a minute. But first, we have a question for Andy Katz, COO of Next. Andy, if a company wants to actually come to Next and utilize your database and target texting candidates, I mean, how does that actually work? Right. So we have the software to provide it two different ways. If an employer has their own database of opted in text messages, whether it's through their ATS, we can text on their behalf. Or we have over eight and a half million users that have opted into our text messaging at this point. So we can use our own database. We can dissect it by obviously by geography, by function, um, any which way. Some and sometimes we'll even parse the resumes of the opted in people to target certifications. So we really can you know dive really deep if they want to hone in on you know just give me the best hundred candidates that I want to text message with and have a conversation back and forth with versus going and saying I need 30,000 retail people across the country. And that's more of a, you know, yes, no text messaging back and apply. For more information, go to hiring.next.com. Remember, that's next with the double X, not the triple X. Hiring.next.com. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. 
I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So as we talk about job descriptions, I think it would be, and, and, and again, just to be able to implement as we're all looking toward technology today to try to make our jobs easier, to make our job descriptions better. Why haven't companies embraced the text deals and the get optimals of the world because this uh, helps them de-genderify their jobs, for, provide better experience, those types of things. Do you think those types of tools help or is it really just kind of like smoke and mirrors? Um, I'm not saying they don't help. I, I think it is good to look at the language you're using in terms of the, J, the JD and you say Textio, all the, those products do a great job. And I know that Textio are working on looking at faith and religion and other, other terminology, not just gender. So they're broadening out their inclusion type lens on, on jobs. But I think there's a lot more responsibility into maybe the positive action side. How do you target underrepresented groups? And I, and I prefer the term underrepresented rather than diversity, because since when has a woman been diverse? A woman is 50% of the population. Uh, so I prefer women are underrepresented in organizations. Maybe black people are underrepresented or underheard or under underpromoted. So, yeah, I think the positive action should be about how you fill the funnel up. How do you, how do you target, how do you spearfish the candidates you want rather than net fish and trawl? So looking at, how you place that JD, how you frame it, where you, where you advertise it, who, who, who is your sourcer, how you're reaching out into, into the, the talent pool, this mythical talent pool, and, and really reaching out and saying, well, actually, we're looking to hire more female candidates. Where do we, where do we fish? Where do we, where do we do this? How do we sound more attractive? And I don't think organizations are still clear on how to brand themselves that they're in terms of to attracting people from uh, underrepresented communities, whether that's race, faith, or gender. Let's stick with uh, technology. And you know the show and, and who we talk to. We talk to a lot of AI folks. Um, and on one hand, AI is a panacea for unbiased recruiting. Uh, companies in Sweden are building actual robots to help make that happen, which I'm sure you, you've heard that. And then on the other side, we have we have Amazon who had uh, an AI hiring system that they shut down because when you have people teaching, you know, the algorithm that tends to be biased. So where do you stand on AI and, and, and having unbiased recruiting? Is it a panacea or is it like reality waiting to happen? Uh, well, my soapbox on this is kind of along the lines of a tech stack is great. Having tech in your organization to allow you to, to process at scale, hire at scale for some organizations is a, is a necessary evil in order to, 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 to handle the number of recs they've got in a certain period of time. But for me, the danger with relying on tech or AI is that it doesn't allow positive action. And this goes against what we're talking about. In, in order to make a difference and make change in the world, we need to hire white men at a lower ratio than women or women of color, women of faith. If we keep hiring at 50-50, the situation doesn't change. We'll always end up with 70% men, 30% women or worse. So 
for me, we've got to hire 70% women and 30% men to start moving the needle at all. And the danger with unbiased systems is that the theory should be you get 50%, 50-50, or you should get a, a fair balance of people out the other end. And if you are trying to do positive action campaigns, how can you influence who comes out at the end of the funnel? And that's the challenge I would put to people is that, yes, it's great to have these systems. It's great to be unbiased. It's great to give everybody this fair chance. It's great to be objective. But what if you do want to employ more black people, more women, more black women, or whatever whatever your target underrepresentation is? If you unbiased the process too much, you lose the ability to, po- to use positive action to select and promote and, and advocate for people that you're trying to attract. And the only way you can then do that is by targeted sourcing, targeted uh, JDs at your target audience to make it unattractive in this role for the incumbent monoculture. And at the moment, people are writing one JD for everybody. How does um? What's your thoughts about employment brand? And um, Chad and I talked about uh, Glassdoor. Uh, Glassdoor news new feature last week where they actually have sort of DNI scores. Um, for companies, particular bigger companies, um, is that helpful? Um, what's your What's your stance on sort of employment branding and, and being able to fill that funnel with diverse candidates? Um, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I've heard people who obviously employer branding specialists big it up and talk about it. I've heard other people who poo poo the idea of employer branding um, videos of people on their site. All these kind of stories as making no difference at all. But I, I, my view is it does make a difference. If you're underrepresented, if you are coming from a minority represented group background, then you do want to see great stories about the people you're applying to. You do want to know what their LGBT inclusion stance is. You do want to know what their their, their values are on flexible working, women's issues, um, child care, health care, in- inclusive health care. So you do want to know where people stand on this. People are now looking at sustainability, environmental issues. You want to know your, where your employer stands on these type of issues. And it may not be something that us Gen Xers worry about so much, but I'm sure as X is X, the Gen Zs, the Gen Alphas are, are very hyper-conscious of the, these, the impact on the world. And they want to work with companies that are going to be ethical, sustainable, and true and authentic. Yeah, purpose purpose matters. Uh, so, Joanne, Jim Stroud and I were having friendly discourse last month, which is a, a thirty minute debate, and he brought up meritocracy as being the way past diversity goals. Now, Jim is a black man living in the United States, and he believes in meritocracy so much that he said it over and over and over during our debate. The question is: Has Jim been duped? Have many people been duped by a very successful, quote unquote, best person for the job disinformation campaign? Well, my, my easy answer to that is yes, most probably. Why do I think that? I, I, I think if we look at organizations, whilst there are a lot of great organizations making huge differences, and we can all name these the big tech brands that are all making very positive statements, this sexism is still rife in many organizations. People of color, black people, are underrepresented or underpromoted or undervalued in most organizations. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we can say there are huge strides towards making great initiatives and great action happening. 
But the evidence is that there's still a long way to go. Men still make up 70 or 80% of the key positions. Women are still tokenized in the boardroom in most of the large organizations. Where they are represented in the boardroom, their tenure in those positions is often fraught with uh, challenges and accused afterwards of, of, of because they're a woman, they didn't succeed or their woman will get fed up with that, that the male boardroom environment where they just they can't succeed in a boys club. Joanne, part of it is uh, curiosity and part of it is the fact that I'm, I'm cooped up in my house probably for the next year. But you, you've done a lot of traveling and you, you speak in a lot of different countries and, and cultures. And I'm just curious, is, are, do we have more in common than we have in difference or are there real distinct challenges within borders? I, I think each territory has its own weirdos, if you like, or its own minorities. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a great fan of Dilbert. I don't know if you come across Dilbert cartoons. And one thing oh, yeah. the author Scott Adams says is everyone is someone else's weirdo. And when you look over the fence, you, it's easy to find someone who is different to you and maybe pink hair, six foot five, looks too tall, looks too short, in a wheelchair, has a wooden leg. So we can all find our weirdos. But what we often don't do is look in the mirror and see ourselves sometimes as the one being judged by others. So we're, we're quick to judge, but not necessarily quick to understand that we're, we're just a human like everybody else. But yeah, I, mean, I spent some time in Ukraine. And one of the things I've, I was very surprised at is, is how rife ageism is there coming off the back of being part of the Soviet Union, there was a real culture of lack of it. You know, people weren't, weren't rewarded for being educated. People were told to do as they were told. So they were burning books. They were closing schools. They were, they were basically um, imprisoning academics. Anyone who dared have any intellect was kind of written off. So there's a whole generation of Ukrainians and then people in the Eastern Bloc over 50 years old, who were basically brought up not to think or not to speak out or not to educate themselves. So that's now manifesting itself in the Ukrainian recruitment system that you immediately, you're, you're in your late 40s, early 50s, you're seen as old, and therefore unable or unwilling to learn. And I was really surprised at that attitude. And of course, again, in, in some of these um, old Soviet Union, Eastern Europe sort of locations, the role of the woman in society is very much more is very much different, very much more subservient to a man. You know, the gender roles are more defined still. Uh, I was in Tel Aviv in Israel. There's a hierarchy within people of the Jewish faith. Whether you're a Russian Jew, a Filipino Jew, whether you were born in in in, in Israel, been through military service, etc., etc. So there's a whole hierarchy of being a Jew within the recruitment. And if you if you were in military service, you grew up with a cohort while you did your, your military service, and you were more likely to hire somebody who had, uh, who had been in your cohort in the military. And Filipino Jews are seen as, as cleaners and office workers and low level. And there were so this real kind of no value to someone who's Filipino in, in higher management or, or, or more technical skills. So you look at different countries, we all have something. We all have a different weirdo. We all have a different demon or a different grouping that is is, is neglected. Uh, in some countries, it's amplified. In other, maybe gender is amplified or race is amplified. In other countries, it, it's it's different. You know, in, in in some of Europe, there's language barriers. You know, there's different dialects in Switzerland, many different cantons and different languages. In Belgium, they have different languages. The the, the French Belgians are seen as lower status than the Flemish Belgians. So we all have, there's so many different differences that it's very it's very difficult to sort of generalize 
as to one particular group or one particular country that's getting it right or wrong. There's no doubt there are many different flavors of uh, meritocracy. And from my standpoint, at this point, they're all bullshit. Joanne <laughs> Lockwood, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Inclusion and belonging specialist. Joanne, if somebody wants to connect with you or they want to find out more about what you do to help maybe inclusion and belonging in their organization, where should they go? Check me out on LinkedIn. So if you search for Joe Lockwood, J-O Lockwood, L-O-C-K-W-O-O-D, or if you've got your keyboard handy, C-Change-Happen, S-W-E-Change-Happen.co.uk is my website. Lovely. Excellent. We out. We out. This has been the Chat and Cheese Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. And be sure to check out our sponsors because they make it all possible. For more, visit chadcheese.com. Oh yeah, you're welcome. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.